Good morning. How's everybody doing? I agree with what Dorinda was saying, and I hope you guys do too. Maybe you're new here and you, and you don't agree yet, just because you haven't been around long enough. Well, plan on being here next week and plan on staying for lunch, right? We're going to have a hangout. We're going to have some games. Maybe you're going, ah, I'm not a game person. Well, it's all right. Just hang out and talk. Just hang out and meet somebody. Just be here. You don't necessarily have to play games. You're going to go, ah, but James is going to, he likes games, and he's going to try to convince me to play Twister, and it would be James and Chris Miller and, and Dell. Dell will fall on me, and Chris will win. That's how it's going to go down. No, it's not like that. Just come and hang out. It's going to be a good time. We want you guys uh, to be there and to be a part of that. What's the time on that? That's after church till till 3 unless you're having a lot of fun or they kick us out we might stay longer you know all right there is no good way to set this room up yet with one screen no matter where we put the screen and me somebody has a sightline problem all right Farrell and the room team are trying to figure it out they're going to if it's not right it's just cuz there's no good way to do it if it turns out right it's cuz Farrell figured it out so bear with me. If you need me to move out of the way, if I'm in your sight line, um, I'll move out of the way. Just holler at me. Open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. We are going to begin uh, a series through the book of Jonah. We're going to have a few things going on at the same time. You'll see me up here about once a month, and we'll be working through Jonah and one of the key focuses in Jonah is actually evangelism. If you're familiar with Jonah, it's, it's really it's a, a failed evangelist story that comes around at the end. Um, but one of, the, one of Dell's hearts for this group is that we would be training up shepherds, which are evangelists, right? Uh, men like or not like Jonah, who had a responsibility to shepherd, but but failed. Why did Jonah fail? These are, that's one of the things that we'll be looking at. And an and, uh, and evangelist, right? And, and that also plays into what Dell is teaching uh, on first and third weeks through the book of Samuel. There's a lot of leadership principles, a lot of shepherding principles that will come out of there. As we look at Jonah, I'm calling this the burden of Nineveh, will be the title for this series. That's actually the introduction to the book of Nahum. And we'll actually do a combined study in both Jonah and Nahum. All right, so Nahum is the burden of Nineveh and the prophecy that God gave uh, that man regarding uh, Nineveh. And we'll talk about Nineveh here in just a minute. And specifically, you know, for a subtext, the subtitle, we're looking at getting God's heart for souls. Because out of all of this, out of the book of Jonah, out of Nahum, we want to be able to see how, how much, how desperately, how deeply God loves souls. And I want us to get that heart, that we would see souls, that we would see people the way that God sees them. We would see the reality of eternity. We would see the reality of the lost. We would see the reality of God's mercy in, in ways that maybe we never have seen before and then be moved to action because of that. And those are some of the themes that come out of this book. When you look at Jonah, you have to recognize God's love for the lost. 
And that'll be one of the themes that we'll talk about. You'll have to recognize God's hatred for sin. And you'll, you'll learn a little bit more about that here in just a few minutes as we, look at, as we look at Nineveh. You'll learn about God's wrath and his justice and his mercy viewed in light of each other. And this is an area that, that people struggle with. Well, how can God be a God of love and also a God of wrath at the same time? How can God be a God of, uh, of peace and patience and also a God of vengeance at the same time? Because, because his perfect love, because, his perfect, because he is perfectly just, it demands that he hold everybody accountable to truth. And whichever side of truth you decide to fall on will be the accountability that you're held to. And so we'll talk through those things as we, as we work through it. We will see uh, in, this chap in this book the, uh, a lo the love of God for souls that surpasses all else. And we will see our need to have a love for God that surpasses all else. Because when you have a love for God, you're going to have God's heart. It's not just enough, actually, that we get a, a heart for souls. We actually want to get God's heart. Because when we get God's heart, then we will love the things that God loves. And we will hate the things that God hates. That's one of the metrics by which we would know if we have God's heart. You can just start looking at the things you love and the things you hate. And so a hatred for sin that surpasses a hatred for consequence would be another one of the themes that we'll need to look at today. And I think this is a struggle for a lot of us, is that we get in trouble. You know, if you have kids, you definitely see this. Your kids get in trouble, and they don't like the consequence of their sin. They don't like the fact that they, they're grounded, or they don't get screens, or they, don't, or they get the rod, or whatever the consequence is. They, they don't like the consequence, but they don't actually care about the sin that got them there. Now, unless we've actually learned and grown and matured spiritually, unless we've been intentional, intentional, in, what? Intentional. <laughs> that word got funny. <laughs> unless we've been intentional about getting God's heart, then all we've done is grown older and grayer, but we're probably just like our kids. And we hate the consequence of our actions, but we didn't actually hate the sin that got us there. So those are some of the things that we'll talk through as we work through this book. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, it's a great book. God, if you've been around church, then it's a kid's story. It's something we've all known for a long time. But God, it's, a, it's an adult story. It's an us story. It's a challenging story. And uh, Lord, you have a lot to say to us, and I pray that you would speak, that you would lead us, you would guide us, and that at the end, we truly would get your heart. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to put an outline up on the screen first. And that's uh, a lot of words. You might want a picture of it. This is the way the book breaks down. And it's one of these uh, chiastic structures. You might have heard that term before. I Meaning it looks like an X, or it kind of goes in and comes back out. And I've, and I've marked that for you up here as well. So it begins with Jonah's commissioning. God calls, God speaks to Jonah in verses 1 through 3. We'll read those verses in just a moment. And then Jonah decides to run away. He, he rejects the call. And then he ends up on a boat out in the sea, and you get Jonah and these pagan sailors. And that'll finish out um, most of chapter 1. The very end, he begins to pray. 
And then Jonah begins to, to pray. And then you get this repeat of the exact same process. And so that was A, B, C, and then you get A prime, B prime, and C prime, because he goes through the exact same step over again. Maybe this sounds like your life. Like, I feel like my life is on repeat. It went A, B, C, and I thought D was coming next, and now I'm back at A again. Why is that? Because when we don't learn the things that God wants us to learn in the A, B, C process, he doesn't push us on. He says, you've got to come back. And so when you get to chapter 3, Jonah gets commissioned again. Chapter 3 begins just like chapter 1. They have to start back at the basics, even though it's been a really hard path for Jonah to get there. You guys know what happens to Jonah, right? He gets thrown into the sea, swallowed by a fish, taken down to the depths of the sea, spends three days, three nights there, Blech! gets spit out by a fish back on land, and God just starts over and says, okay. And now Jonah again finds himself a, a full, in a place full of pagans. This time it's in Nineveh, where he's supposed to be. And then in chapter 4, he prays again. And then at the very end, you get the, the last part of chapter 4, where it finally starts to move forward again, but not really, because Jonah hasn't changed. Because Jonah's heart isn't changed. And God gives Jonah a really hard lesson at the very end. And at, at the end... It's kind of a depressing book. You know, you, you like fairy tale stories. We've been trained to like, you know, these arcs that start like an uh, unsuspecting hero. Uh, and then, you know, something happens, they start to rise. Maybe they have uh, that hardship, but then they recover and they're back up. And then at the end, they get married or they live happily ever after. They win. Yay! Jonah rebels, responds for himself, preaches the gospel but hates it, wants to die. That's basically how the book ends. God, it were better if I just died. Somebody's got to die. <laughs> that was Jonah's mindset, too. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Joppa, so he paid the fare thereof, and went down into it, to it, and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And we'll just... We're going to get an introduction today, and we'll come back next month, and we'll dive into it even more. Well, let's just start with this first question. Who is Jonah? Who is this guy? Because you're just thrown into his life right here. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah. But we do have a couple places in Scripture where we can get more information about Jonah. Really, actually only one. There is one place in Scripture outside of the book of Jonah where Jonah is named, and that's 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 25. It says this, in the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. Pause. There's some, some similar names, overlapping names. It gets a little confusing. There's a lot going on between some of these families. And you're like, Who, who's, who's this Joash guy, son of Jeroboam, son of Joash? A couple different people, same name. Uh, we won't focus too much there. Just jump in and figure it out when you have some time. And he reigned forty and, and one years. 
And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, and departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from entering from the, uh, from the entering of Hamath under the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-hefer. So this is the only time that Jonah is named outside of the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. And then Jesus will actually mention Jonah a couple times in the New Testament as, you know, many, many years later. So we see that Jonah is a prophet, that, uh, that he is the fifth of the minor prophets, uh, you can jump to the next screen. That'll give you some of these points. Jonah is, is the fifth of the minor prophets. So after Daniel, you have a series of what are called minor prophets. All that means is that the, the message that they delivered was smaller in number of words. It was just a shorter message. So from after Daniel, you got Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Bacchus, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. All of those guys were minor prophets. There were a lot of them, but their books are pretty small. In total, I think Jonah uh, is 48 verses, if I, if I did my math right. Uh, 48 verses to get through the entire book. It doesn't mean that he is less important or the message that he delivered is any less important than Daniel or Ezekiel or Jeremiah. It just means that he uh, had fewer words recorded of him. All right. Now, his name means dove. Jonah's name means dove. The dove in the Old Testament was a clean bird by law, and it's a type of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, as Jesus is coming up from his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And the, the dove was sent out by Noah in the ark. If you remember when Noah was in the ark, first time the dove appears, he, he sends out a raven first. It never returns, but then he sends out a dove. And ultimately, the dove in that very first picture is the one that is leading and guiding Noah to know uh, the, the safe next move to make, just like the Holy Spirit does in our life. And the Holy Spirit is always submitted to the Father, always doing his work, and is in the New Testament involved in drawing the lost to Christ. Right? We know when we look in John chapter 14 and 16, we get the, the work of the Holy Spirit. And part of that work is that the Holy Spirit is drawing and convicting both the lost and the saved, but drawing us always closer to Christ. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. His Father's name is Amittai, and His Father's name means truth. So you have the Holy Spirit, you have the dove coming out of the truth. You have a great picture being set up just in these names, right? Because there is an intimate relationship between uh, truth and the Holy Spirit. Before you can receive the Holy Spirit, you have to have truth. And so truth came first. Amittai the Father was truth, and out of him came the dove, the Spirit. But this is all setting us up because in the Bible, especially in God's people, names mean a lot, right? This is setting us up for an expectation by his parents and by the Lord of who he should be. We're already starting to see that he should be, he should be. The dove. What else do you know about the dove? We always think about the dove as the, the symbol of peace, right? Especially the dove and the olive branch, right? He should be the one that brings peace, the one that brings truth in the midst of, of, of destruction, in the midst of warfare, in the midst of a hard place. He is a native, it says, of Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer means a, a, the wine press. 
or the trough of the wine press. Gath Heifer is the place where the grapes are, are smashed down and stomped so that the juice can run out. It's a picture of the wrath of God. Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 6, God says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments. I will stain all my raiment. You get the same types of ideas in the future in Revelation 14 and Revelation 19. In Revelation 14, and the winepress of uh, was trodden without the city, and the blood came out of the winepress even to the horse's bridle by the space of uh, 1,600 furlongs. Talking about the battle of Armageddon, the day when the Lord will return. Revelation 19 says that a sharp two-edged sword goes out of his mouth to smite the nations, and he treadeth the winepress with the fierceness of his wrath. Talking about that same idea. And so this is, a, this is that type of place. This is where Jonah came from. He came from the place where the wrath of the Lord was being put on display by its name, the wine press, where God would come and would, would, would stretch his people, would press his people, would, would draw out of them through very difficult means what was in them. He's from the land of, of Zebulun. We learn that in Joshua chapter 19, verses 10 to 13, the land of Zebulun. Or I'm sorry, it says that the Gath Heifer was of Zebulun. So we know then that most likely Jonah is of the tribe of Zebulun. He is, he is uh, in, in, the, in the northern kingdom of Israel. This is where Zebulun falls out after the kingdoms are divided. He is, this, this Zebulun is, is actually near unto uh, Nazareth in the area that would become known as, as Galilee, right? So out of Nazareth in Galilee is, is also where Jonah comes from. He's one of the few prophets that actually came from the northern kingdom. Once they're divided, the northern kingdom is, is an exceptionally wicked kingdom. You have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. You have a lot of prophets that go and prophesy to them, but he's one of the few that is from there. Next slide, please. Yeah, so he lived, oh, and he lived during the reign of Jeroboam II. Again, there were two guys named King Jeroboam, um, and he was, he was during the second reign. I'll show you that in just a second. I want you to listen to what Matthew Henry said uh, regarding the kings and the prophets. He said this, It is a sign that God has not cast off his people if he continue faithful ministers among them. When Elisha, who strengthened the hand of Joash, was removed... Jonah was sent to encourage his son. Happy is the land that has a succession of prophets running parallel with a succession of princes, that the word of the Lord may endure forever. And I think that's beautiful. Um, next slide. It's going to be small, and you won't be able to see it well, but here's a timeline. It'll be online if you want to be able to get a hold of it. But it shows you uh, all the kings and where they fall out. In the very beginning, you had Jeroboam the first. You come down here. Here's Jeroboam the second. Joash, next slide, is going to give you even more detail that you can't see from there. But you have all these prophets that are mixed in. Elisha uh, overlaps in those kings ahead of Jonah. And then Jonah shows up right here uh, in the time of Jeroboam II, which is roughly 782 to 753 uh, B.C. That's when that king reigned. The prophecy in the book of Jonah are written around 760 years before Christ. 
And so this is a, a cool thing that God is doing. You have kings, and for every king, God is sending a man to minister unto them. God always wants his leaders, God always wants his people to have a prophet delivering a message unto them. And the same is true for you and I. And this is one of the prayers of, that we as a church hold for this church. And this is one of the reasons why we value discipleship so much. Because the next generation needs prophets. It needs men and women who will take the word of God and faithfully deliver it to them. Amen. One day, Sam will, will no longer be the pastor of Midtown Baptist Temple. And whoever that next man is that will come and, and, and figuratively will be, will be king, he'll take that leadership role. Our prayer is that God would continue to send faithful men who will minister unto that man as well. That he would not be in that work alone. But the same thing is true at every level of, uh, of leadership in this church. That we have men who are, who are leading, but we need men and women who would stand behind them and hold them accountable to God's word. And it is a sign of the love of God that he continues to do that. And he's even doing that for Israel, a rebellious nation. All right. Next slide. We'll move on away from those. Like I said, you can't see those very well. Now, Jonah is mentioned by Jesus in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 12. He says this, but he answered and said unto them, just as this is Jesus speaking, uh, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign and there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so Jesus himself uses Jonah and tells us clearly that Jonah is a type of Christ. That's kind of hard to get, knowing what we know about Jonah. Now, specifically, Jonah is a, is a type of Christ's death and resurrection. Jonah is a type of the very hardest, most difficult component of Christ's life. If I had the opportunity to choose what part of Christ's life I was going to be like, I would not choose the, those last couple days. Maybe I could get, uh, you know, like the, the send them out, like two by twos. Let's do that part of the ministry. Let's do the feeding of the 5,000. Can, can I typify some of those... Uh, miracles that you did, Lord, maybe, maybe post-resurrection, like glorious declaration of the mission. Can I get that? And Jonah gets to be the type of the death and resurrection. It also tells us specifically that he actually was assigned to the Ninevites. He was sent specifically to be a sign to the Ninevites. The same thing is said in, in Luke chapter 11, verses 29 to 32. Uh, you get Jesus saying the exact same thing again. Now, Here's our uh, uh, next slide. Here's the first. Oh, let me give you this. So, you know, there was a comment made, once again, by the enemies of the Lord, by, those, by, the, by the religious, by the theologians. I shared a theologian with some of you this week. Here's, here's a comment made by a similar theologian. In John chapter 7 and verse 52, And they answered and said unto him, Art thou of Gal also of Galilee? Search and look. For out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. Now this was directed against the Christ, against Jesus. But hold up, if we back up for a minute, Jesus tells us that, that Jonah is a prophet out of Galilee. 
So once again, these two men are being linked together, uh, Jesus and Jonah. And in this case, the point that they're trying to make is like, Jonah wasn't a prophet. Jonah, was, he didn't obey the Lord. He's a loser. But God said, no, he was a prophet. I sent him. Right? And so the world looks at Jonah in a different way than what, than what Christ looked at Jonah. And the expectation that the world had, the reality that they had, is different than the expectation that the Lord had. There was an expectation from Jonah. Now, he didn't live it well. We'll look at all of that. But here's the first key thought that I want to present to you today. You have an identity in Christ. God has made you to be somebody very specific. Just like he did Jonah. And Jonah knew it in his name. Jonah knew it in his father's name. Jonah knew it because of where he was from. Jonah knew it because of what the Lord had spoken to him about and told him to do. Go to Nineveh and preach mercy to them. Jonah was to be that dove that came forth out of the wrath of God but led people out of the wine press where they would be trodden under and, would, and it was to lead them as the dove into the merciful love of God. That is who Jonah was designed to be. The one who would speak truth and comfort in the presence of God's wrath. Who did God make you to be? How has God designed you? with your personality and gifts and everything that God has done to put you together, the family that you came from, those, those things matter. They influence us. The place that you came from, the place that you are now, who does God want you to be? And that's a really important question because some of us don't know. And if you don't know, in, in a few minutes, when we have some time to stop and reflect, that's what I want you to think about. That's what I want you to think about this week. Who did God make me to be? What does God want me to do? How should I identify? And for others, you do know, but you're just not living it. For others, the testimony of the world would be like that verse we saw just before this one. They would look at you and go, no prophet has ever come out of Galilee. They'll go, there's no good person that's ever come out of Raytown, Midtown Baptist Temple. When you go out into the world, who, are, who is God calling you to be and what is the message he's calling you to take? And your coworkers and the people that engage with you and the people that are around you, do they go, oh, I know Midtown because I know no good thing comes out of Midtown. We need to know who God has designed us to be. And getting God's heart means that we need to live exactly who God designed us to be in obedience to what he has called us to do. Even if that makes me different than the people around me, and even if that makes me different maybe even than the person I want to be. Because if my heart is going to get aligned with God's heart, I don't get to choose who I want to be. I get to be who God designed me to be. That's the person that he can use. You know, in, in some ways it's true that like I 
Pastor James, I should be more like Pastor Sam. I should follow him as he follows Christ. There are things that I can learn from him and model from him. There are, in some ways, that, that I could be and probably should be more like Pastor Kenny. And I could say that about a lot of people who are following the Lord, and I can glean from them. But you know what God does not want me to do? Be Pastor Sam. Be Pastor Kenny. God wants me to be Pastor James. And that's different than Pastor Sam or Pastor Kenny. Not only is that okay, it's actually ideal. And this is a hard thing. You know, I got preteens, a lot of us have some preteens, teens, early teens. It's tough years. You're trying to figure out your identity. But the truth is, again, for a lot of us as adults, we might have gotten older, but we didn't actually figure out who we're supposed to be. And the truth is, a lot of us still struggle with our identity. We never got settled in who Christ wanted us to be. And if we're not settled in who God wants us to be, when he calls us to do that work, we're going to respond like Jonah. We're going to say, mm-hmm, I'm just going to go over this way, Lord. This way is better than that way. All right, so that's Jonah. So why Nineveh? God called Jonah, but then he called him very specifically to go to Nineveh. Nineveh, it said right there in, in, in chapter 1 and verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, and it says that great city. I didn't give you a slide for this. Um, you can do the study. I'll give you the overview. Great city is an interesting designation. You know, on, on, on like the, the simple understanding of that, we'll be told later that it's a, day that, it's a city that will take three days to walk across, meaning it's just big. Right? It's a big place. We know that there are 80,000 people who live there, according to this book of Jonah. We see that at the end of the chapter, or at the end of the book. But great city, when you run that through Scripture, you're going to find a few other cities that were called a great city. In Genesis 10, Rezin, R-E-S-E-N, Rezin, Resin, is called a great city. Gibeon, in Joshua 10, is called a great city. Judah, in Jeremiah 22, is called a great city. Nineveh, many times in Scripture here in Jonah, is called a great city. Babylon, it's called a great city. Revelation 14, 8, 18, 10, 18, 16, 18, 18, 18, 19, 18, 21. It said a lot of Babylon. Now, Babylon, what do you guys know about Babylon? Real quick, shout it out. I heard someone whisper it out. <laughs> mumbo, mumbo. Wicked. Yes, what else? Anything else? Destroyers, slaves. They take slaves. They take captive. Yeah. Anything else? Are they God's friend? No. Are they friends with God's people? No. In fact, you get it into Revelation, you're going to see all kinds of uh, really wicked stuff about Babylon and, and who they are in the future. Um, so there's a number of cities that are called a great city, but most, most of the time it's talking about um, Babylon. Then you'll get into a few other that are a little less clear, like spiritually Sodom and Egypt. 
uh, the, the, where the Lord was crucified is called a great city. You could say literally as Jerusalem. You could see that it was under Roman control. You could see that the great city will be divided into three parts from an earthquake in Revelation 16. Uh, the great city will reign over all the kings of the earth. Uh, Antichrist kingdom. Babylon is a picture of Antichrist kingdom. Babylon is, is a kingdom that will, will overthrow and overrule all of the earth, okay? Uh, Babylon uh, is, is going to be, for a season, the great city of the earth, ruling all of the earth, and ruling wickedly. Antichrist kingdom. So that makes Nineveh, for us, a picture of Babylon, a type of Antichrist city. Now, interestingly... Interestingly, the Assyrian Empire was ultimately defeated by the Babylonians. Nineveh is going to become part of the Babylonian Empire. Nineveh, a wicked city they are themselves, and we'll see that in just a second, is going to fall prey to an even more wicked people. So they make an interesting type of, of the Antichrist kingdom, of a wicked city, a wicked rule that oppresses God's people and opposes God and God's people at every turn. So Nineveh is the, the capital of the Assyrian Empire at this time. In 2 Kings chapter 19 and verse 36, it says, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. So after a battle, the Assyrian king returns to Nineveh because that is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Now, I didn't put all these verses up there. Turn to 2 Kings. So we need to look at a few verses. Assyria is an aggressive, violent military power that opposes God and opposes God's people all throughout Scripture. When you look at the major enemies of, of God's people throughout Scripture, uh, Assyria would be in, in the top five on that list, however you want to cut your list. You'd be like Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, right? And then you got like the Philistines and, and then all the ites, the Moabites, the, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, right? All of those. But Assyria is up there. 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 28, starting in verse 28. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and spake, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Listen to how he uh, describes himself. Very antichrist-like. The great king, he, he sees himself as a ruler over all the earth. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you. Hezekiah is the king of God's people. For he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and the city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria. You hear what he's saying? Don't trust God. Don't trust the king that God gave you. Listen to what the king of Assyria has to say. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria. Make an agreement with me by a present. This is how Antichrist will work. Make an agreement with me and come out to me. And you see it in Daniel. Bow down. Worship me. Then eat ye every man of his own wine and every one of his, of his fig tree and drink ye every one the waters of his cisterns. Come, make an agreement with me and you'll be okay. I'll take care of you. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of oil, olive, and of honey that you may live and not die. And hearken not to Hezekiah when he persuadeth you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. 
Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? So this is the message from Assyria. We have destroyed every land we have come up against, and every land has their own god. And you know what? None of those gods are equivalent to who? The king of Assyria. This is their message. This is Antichrist. This is Antichrist-type kingdom. And he's making the same offer that he will make to the entire world. You just come out, submit to me, and then you can, what? Eat, drink, buy, trade. Everything is controlled by, this, by the king of Assyria. Then you'll have life. You'll have to move, but I'll put you in a good land. King Hezekiah gets humbled before the Lord. Uh, in 2 Kings uh, chapter 19, uh, King Hezekiah doesn't, you know, King, well, King Hezekiah is a mix uh, of responses. But at least in 2 Kings chapter 19, right after this, here's what Hezekiah does. And it came to pass when King Hezekiah heard it that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth. And he went into the house of the Lord and he sent Eliakim, which was over the household of Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And he said unto him, we got to pray. Hezekiah's response to a really hard situation, Hezekiah's response to certain death, Hezekiah's response to, the, to, to Antichrist, Hezekiah's response to those who would oppose all that Christ wants to do, or the Lord in this case, is, I got to get humble. He rips his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He gets the scribe and he gets the priest and he says, we need Isaiah. There's a lot we can learn in this moment from Hezekiah because the further we get into the, these last days, the more and more of this that will be happening, the more and more kings and kingdoms will rise up, big and small, and some as small as your boss or your coworker, and they will say, don't follow the Lord, you will be destroyed, come with me. And maybe some of them will have a lot of power and authority, and it will be really intimidating. And this is the response that we must have. And this is the response that Jonah did not have. Is that we must get on our face before the Lord and we say, I got to have the scribe, meaning I need the book of the Lord. I got to have the priests. I need the worship of the Lord. And I got to get Isaiah the prophet. I need the man of God. I need a counselor. I need counselors in my life. And I need to make sure that I'm running this through God's word. And I need to make sure that I'm still in a position to praise, even though this is hard and scary. They have destroyed everybody. They are coming for me. The only hope that they have is God. Jonah doesn't have this type of mindset that Hezekiah has in this moment. God responds that he, in verse 7, Isaiah starts speaking in verse 6, verse 7, God says this, Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and then shall return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. God says, don't worry, Hezekiah, then I'm going to take care of this. When we respond rightly to challenging situations, God comes in and says, look, I can make a way where there is no way. But for a lot of us, we're looking around saying, I want God to make a way. I want to see, I want to see the seas open. I want to see the miracles happen. But you won't seek them in the hard time. You don't give them a chance to make a way. You figured it out. You devised a plan. Or you ran like Jonah the other direction. Instead of running to the Lord. 
And so God deals with it. God takes care of these, uh, this kingdom. Keep going in 2 Kings 19, verse 10. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, saying, Let not thy God in whom thou trustest deceive thee. This is the same message coming back. You can't withstand us. And ultimately, he's going to tell him this. Behold, thou hast heard what the king of Assyria has done to, to everybody. Nobody can withstand him. He comes back and he doubles down. He provides proof of his power, of his violence, and his destruction. Assyria was exceptionally wicked, known for same thing that you've heard throughout history and from Fox's Book of Martyrs and things that have happened to Christian Assyria. would take women and children and light them on fire, would behead them in front of their families, would, would fillet people, would take their skin off of them, would do all of these horrible, wicked things to God's people, to the nation of Israel right in front of them, and, and would come through and conquer in the name of the king. And we skip ahead to the very end of chapter 19, and let's look at what God does. Verse 35. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. That's a hundred and eighty-five thousand soldiers. This army that is able to conquer the world, this army to which no man can withstand, when Hezekiah gets humbled and calls out for help, God sends an angel, and in the night, one angel walks in there and is like 185,000 of these soldiers dead. God dealt with it. No problem. Verse 36, So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. That's why he went back to Nineveh. Because he woke up and 185,000 of his soldiers were slaughtered. He said, eh, I don't think I can do this today. So that's who Assyria is. They are the enemies of the Lord. They are the enemies all throughout Scripture. They are an exceptionally wicked uh, people. But it's interesting. You know, you can look in, in 2 Kings, as we did. You can look in Isaiah chapter 11. Verses 11 and 16, you can write those down to, to follow up on. You can look in Isaiah chapter 37. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent unto Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Whereas thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, hath despised thee. Christ despises this king and laughed at thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken his, her head at thee. Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice? Here's the message to the king of Assyria. And against whom hast thou lifted up thy eye on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. Let God fight your fights for you. But listen, now here's an interesting thing. God actually uses Assyria to accomplish his work. Do you know that? Hosea 11.5 and, and he shall not return into the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refuse to return. God's people are, are going to be put under the hand of the Assyrian. 2 Kings chapter 18. The king of Assyria did carry away Israel unto Assyria and put them in, in Hala and Habor by the river Gozan and the cities of the Medes, because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord their God, but trespassed against his covenant. And all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they would not hear them nor do them. 
You see, because of Israel's rebellion, God actually uses wicked Assyria to accomplish the work of the Lord. And here's our next key thought that we need to work on and consider as we go into Jonah. There are two ways that God can use you, as a servant or as a warning. You can choose to be rebellious against the Lord, and God can still even get glory out of that, but it will be very hard for you. God used Assyria to get glory, but in one night it cost them 185,000 men, and, and in the end they will fall prey to Babylon, who will treat them the same way that they ended up treating everyone else that they captured. And listen, believer, when the hard times come and when, when God instructs us to go and to do things that are uncomfortable, when God gives us, you know, when, when we recognize who we are in Christ and he tells us what we were created for and we decide not to engage and we decide not to follow the Lord, the Lord can, can be merciful, but the Lord can also say like he did a Pharaoh. He goes, you know what? I'll get glory out of your hardened heart when I destroy you in the sea. Assyria, Antichrist, I'll get glory out of your hardened heart and out of your rebellion when I break you. Christian, this is not a boat you want to be in. God forbid that, that we would be the people that God would make an example of. Because we refuse to, to humble ourselves and be used, God would say, you know what, but I can still get glory. And I will get glory through your destruction. Ultimately, though, Nineveh will be destroyed. Now, unlike Jonah, who was a messenger of grace to the city of Nineveh, a, a hundred years later, Nahum will show up and he will be the messenger of judgment. He, he writes decades before the fall of Nineveh during the reign of King Manasseh and Judah. Uh, but Nahum not only predicts the outpouring of God's wrath upon Assyria, he pronounced it, and of, of course for good reason. Assyria was not only an unusually bloodthirsty nation, uh, but they went a step further by attacking the, the people of God and, and God himself, comparing him to the, all the other gods of other nations. Thus, after Assyria had attacked dozens of cities and Judah stopped only by God's miraculous intervention, which we just looked at, their sins had piled up high before the Lord, and he said that he will not at all acquit the wicked. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 3. The Lord will not acquit the wicked. The Lord will not acquit the wicked. You're not getting off. So using brilliantly des descriptive language, Nahum looks into the future and writes of wrath. I'm going to give you an outline of the book of Nahum. Again, you can take a picture. There's a lot there, but Nahum is all about wrath. We will look at that too as we work through our study of, of the burden of Nineveh. In Jonah, the Ninevites repent. Spoiler alert, they're all going to repent. But their repentance won't last. And a hundred years after that, God will send Nahum to tell them that you guys will be destroyed. And then you will see the wrath of God. You will see the wine press 
of God poured out on Nineveh through the book of Nahum. Next slide. So we got, we got to wrap up. But there, there's two key things that you need to think about today. If you need to talk to somebody about it, do it. But do you know who God made you to be? And if so, are you living it? If judgment were to come right now, if the end were to come right now, would you be found a faithful servant or a rebel? Will God use you to get glory because of your obedience or because of your disobedience? And finally, and this will set us up for next time, Jonah was told to go and declare God's mercy to Israel's greatest enemy at that time, to Assyria. This is part of why he ran. But what about you? Would you declare God's redeeming mercy to those who are your greatest enemies? To those who have wronged you the most? To those who have hurt your family the most? To those who you despise? If God said, I need you to go and share my love with them because my mercy extends to all, even the wicked, would you go? Let's pray. Lord, would, would we go? That's the question. And if we are going to be a people who have your heart, if we are going to be evangelists, then God, no doubt you will ask us to go to a hard people. And God, would we settle in our hearts that, that you're worth it, and that having your heart is worth it, and that we want to be used by you for your glory. We don't want to be the, 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 the example of your wrath. God, we don't want you to get glory because of our rebellion. God, this, we want this people to be a people who brings you glory because of their obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.